Okay, some laid-back music there. All right, I can dig it, though. Maybe that'll be the vibe of season four here of the Jonathan underscore Foster podcast. Welcome back. It's been a long time, and we've been going through quite a bit, coming out of and going through this crazy pandemic, and lots of things have changed. I know my world has changed quite a bit. Faith community I'm a part of, we're getting ready to go through a pretty interesting, challenging transition. It's been tough getting here, but now that we're here, I'm pretty excited about it as we go to more of a permanent online digital content kind of a thing. And lots of good stuff happening with my boys. Um, My oldest, as a matter of fact, just went public with going full-time with our nonprofit out of Haiti. So if you haven't checked out lqve.org, you're going to want to do that so you can learn more about what we're doing in Haiti and what he's up to and some of our Haitian friends. So that's pretty cool. And um, I've been studying some, working on my doctorate. Got a couple of books uh, that'll be coming out this year. And one of them, hopefully somewhere in the middle of this season of the podcast, it's a, it's a collection of short fictional stories, some things I've been working on for, gosh, maybe three years now. These different topics that I've been trying to approach from a creative angle to help me kind of understand what it is that I believe and wrestle with what it is I believe. And so I thought, you know, this is interesting. It's happening all at this same time that I'm starting up this season. So I think I'm going to dedicate this season to these collection of short stories. And we're going to talk about story throughout this season. Story is very interesting to me. I think story truth as we're going to talk about more today, is gospel truth, the tension and the resolution that's involved with really good art always fascinates me. And, you know, you can't have a good story without tension. And hey, I've had a little bit of tension in my life. So, uh, and what that's done is it's forced me to kind of think about things a little bit differently. And so I wrestled with some of it, started writing these short stories a few years ago. Ultimately, this book's going to be called The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. I, I said that to someone the other day, and they said, what's a Melvin? <laughs> Apparently it was a young person who had never heard the name Melvin. But this is the hope and Melvin of humanity and other surprising short stories. And because it's all happening while we're doing these series of audio recording files we'd like to call season four of this podcast, I figured let's just incorporate story into what we're talking about So I've invited a few friends to chat with, uh, some authors and some musicians, some people who dabble in the art world and who are really good at trying to figure out the ups and downs of, of narrative and what makes a good story, really. I think that's what I'm thinking. And so um, it's going to be fun. I mean, why wouldn't it be fun? You and me, we're here together. Let's do this. All right, if you haven't checked out uh, my Patreon page, you are welcome to do so. You're always welcome to do so. Patreon.com backslash actually forward slash. I just realized a couple of weeks ago that I've been saying backslash all this time. It's forward slash for maybe all of the stuff. So I've got to get that straight in my head. My bad. Obviously, I need help. Patreon.com forward slash Jonathan underscore Foster. And uh, you can support me there and get in on some 
Uh, it's not a ton of benefits, but it's a big help to me. So thank you very much. Or if not there, check in to jonathanfosteronline.com and make sure you sign up for the newsletter. And that way we can stay in contact that way. You can also find me on social media, though, as I've said before, I'm using that less and less. As social media to me is essentially turned into an algorithmic mediated tribalistic community. And I'm not sure how much it's helping us in the long run. It's still there. Um, It's almost like a necessary evil. So I have to use it in some ways in the work that I'm in. But I'm trying to put my energy into other places more than good old Facebook or Twitter or whatever. All right. We're going to talk a little bit today about stories. Now, we were told that truth actually had something to do with facts, that we're about the facts. And I do want to say that facts are good. Uh, They're indispensable. But facts, they'll always be interpreted through story. The story will wind up coloring all your facts. For example, if we're talking about the Bible, um, we could say that we know that it's a fact that Israel invaded other countries. I mean, there's a wide variety of interpretations about how much they invaded and how much is accurate, you know, when we compare what the Bible says to what we know archaeologically or scientifically happened. But we can say at some level, yes, Israel certainly invaded some countries, and that is a fact. But the interpretation, now that centers around their motivation, In other words, did God tell them to invade or did they have an idea of a God who told them to do it? Did God tell them to do this or was it more the story that their prefrontal cortex was telling themselves about their God? Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Pew Research, P-E-W. They do a lot of good work. As we think about facts and story, we might say that, you know, the Pew Research indicates, like a lot of other research centers, institutions, places have, that, you know, the African-American representation in our prison system is way, way higher than the Caucasian. That's not even the right way to say it, representation, as if we voted them to be in there. Well, maybe, maybe we did in some ways, but anyhow, the point is, is that there are more black people incarcerated than white people. That's a fact. Now, getting to the truth requires us to work through some stories about how that came to be. I mean, the story could be that African-Americans are simply more criminal than Caucasians, which, of course, is ludicrous. Uh, I mean, it's ludicrous if you're black, but it's also ludicrous if you're white, because if you're white and you have any intellectual honesty at all, you recognize that your people are the people that are most responsible for setting up the prison system in this country in the first place. And so to get to the truth, you got to be willing to wade through the different narratives that exist and the different stories that are out there and the tension and the resolution. And it's really important, man. I mean, we could say again, um, which I think I've said before in other places, something like, you know, that... Jesus dying, I mean, that's a fact. We know that he did die. 
But to get to the truth of what's going on, you have to be willing to interpret it. And the interpretation really revolves around, did he die because God needed him to die? Or did he die because we needed him to die? And depending on the story you're telling yourself, I mean, that makes all the difference in the world. Story. Stories are signs. They're symbols. Um, They're signifiers. So apparently our brains don't really want to spend a lot of calories keeping track of all the specific information that needs to happen at any given moment. And so we use signs as shortcuts to tell us what to do, what to feel, like what to think, or maybe even where to go. So for example, if you're driving down the road and you see a crosswalk sign, I mean, at just a moment's glance, you know to slow down because that crosswalk sign is telling you a story. It's a story that there are people in the street and you need to slow down. Or if you're watching television and you see a commercial with a guy who has a huge mustache, you know right away that this is going to be a story about a truck commercial probably. (laughs) Or a beer commercial. Actually, no. Probably not a beer commercial. You know, beer commercials are confusing because beer commercials are usually full of people who are young and like athletic and fit, which of course makes no sense. Like like if you drink beer, you're going to look like that. All right, forget the beer commercial thing. But definitely trucks. I mean, you're going to see a lot of mustaches in truck commercials. Or how about if you see, like, the Kansas City Chiefs logo? That's right, you're going to hear angels singing. (laughs) Or you're going to think of barbecue sauce. But then again, maybe barbecue sauce is angelic. So it all kind of fits together. Anyhow, the problem is whether it's road signs or whether it's commercials or NFL football team logos. Uh, When we see something, our brain loves to take shortcuts and summarize something quickly so that it will help us, you know, come to some kind of decision. Of course, my problem is, I don't know if you can relate to this, um, I sometimes get impatient and I start connecting the dots. I start telling myself stories too quickly before I, before I should. So maybe I'll see someone dressed in a particular way with a particular hairstyle and all they have to do is use a word or two or a phrase or two and all of a sudden my brain goes symbol, signifier, story crazy. And then I just have convinced myself right away that they're a preacher or there's someone deeply embedded within a Western Christian evangelical culture. And then I'm like, oh yeah, these are people who, you know, since they believe in penal substitutionary atonement, they're obviously not people who are going to like me. And so therefore, I, I choose not to like them. So do you see how problematic that can be? Um, it's problematic when I assume I don't like someone And then I proactively, you know, don't interact with them. And the funny thing is, man, in my not being like them, I'm actually being like them. In my not, in me saying, oh, they're not going to like me, so I'm not going to be like them. Yeah, I'm actually being like them. It is something of, um, to get into René Girard a little bit, the symmetry of antagonism, actually Girard tends to call it doubling. I'm not sure he uses that phrase, but there's an author by the name of Chris Fleming from Down Under 
Uh, I've heard him use that phrase. I like it, the symmetry of antagonism. And it reveals to us that we wind up fighting not over our differences, but because of our similarities. It's really quite amazing when you see it. But we think we're being different, but it's really our similarities. It's the symmetry of antagonism. Like, I think I'm being different by not liking those particular people who believe that theology. But the truth is I wind up being more like them than I really want to be. And it reminds me that none of us are really that original, which is quite disheartening for somebody like me, who's probably a number four on the Enneagram. I mean, I hate to admit that maybe I'm not that original. But I also recognize that I'm pretty Girardian in my thinking. And I think that we're all mimetic creatures, which just means we're relational creatures and that our desires are mediated by the desires of the other. And if we're not careful, the objects that they desire and the things that they want to become like, um, not only become the objects that we desire, it becomes what we want to be like. So it becomes less about a particular object sometimes and more about the relationship they have with those objects. And so the meaning we imagine that they've created by having those things becomes what we want to the degree that we start to want to become like them. Um, and I'm convinced this works its way out in strange and odd ways. I mean, like when I think about the aforementioned example of this person who is deeply embedded within a Western penal substitutionary atonement, Christian evangelical thinking, you know, there's a part of myself that might be saying that person is so confident of who they are that I really desire the confidence that they have in their theology. And so in my similarity, I begin to push away from them and try to differentiate, but I'm actually acting more like them because then I'm getting aggressive and potentially aggressive. I don't think I'm aggressive necessarily, but I am potentially introducing conflict all because of the story that I'm telling myself. It's It gets really complex and very interesting when you start to you know, kind of peel away the layers. But the problem here is, as I've gone off on this tangent of mimetic theory, well, there's a lot of problems actually, but one of the problems is if I'm reacting to someone else and if my desire is being mediated by their desires, um, the same thing is happening with them too. And so as I act in a particular way, they're responding And so whereas initially they are the model and I'm the subject, all of a sudden it gets flipped and things get reciprocated and I become the model and they become the subject. And in the middle of all of this, um, you know, conflict grows and there's always this sense and this feeling of like we don't have it all together, but that other person does. And so we become jealous of them and, you know, the tension and the conflict grows. And I guess I should, I should highlight the fact that a lot of that really only makes sense as we are aware of our own lack. So sometimes I'll say it like this all plays out against the billowing backdrop of insecurity that humanity is so good at cultivating, is so good at keeping propped up. There's always this kind of gap that we, this existential angst and insecurity that we are aware of that we live with and that we live through and we live in. And no, I don't think Jesus takes that away. I don't think Jesus like fills that gap. 
like that suddenly once you believe in him that your life is all of a sudden freed from the mimetic pole of having your desires influenced by the other person. I don't think Jesus fixes us uh, that way. I think what happens is that Jesus shows us how to be human. And in the middle of all that mimetic contagion that he dealt with, like i.e. the Roman political powers asking him about truth or the religious powers defending their hierarchy, I think in the middle of all of that mimetic contagion that he dealt with, he reoriented his desires around a father of love, non-coercive, non-manipulative, non-scapegoating love. I think what American Christianity gets mixed up a lot with has to do with what Jacques Lacan uh, wrote about when he talked about object of desire versus object cause of desire. Shorthand, it's uh, objet A. It can be kind of complicated, but it has to do with the things that we desire. What we think motivates our desire, we get mixed up. Um, It can be illustrated a number of different ways, but as my wife and I are in the process of buying a new car, I guess that illustration pops to my mind first. And I think you'll you'll be able to pick up on this. Like, you can imagine a guy who wants to buy a new car. He has a desire for a new car. And so he spends a lot of time studying, um, you know, consumer reports and he takes test drives and he figures out which dealerships he wants to interact with or which people he wants to interact with, which salesman he likes. You know, he reads about specs and he finds about interest loans and banking and and he's studying all different kinds of things about the car. And then he finally makes the, the decision to purchase the vehicle only to bring it home and after a week or two not feel like his not feel completely satisfied. I mean, he can, when he first drives into the driveway, he can be excited and feel like, oh, I finally got this thing that I really wanted. But after a couple of weeks, we all know what happens. Um, that feeling, unfortunately, goes away. And having been through this myself personally a few times, I know that that's the case. And so I'm already preparing myself. But what's going on there? Um, according to Lacan, it's like, it's the difference between the your what you thought the object of desire was, but the object cause of desire. And in that particular case, really what that guy was desiring was the struggle to fight through all the obstacles to buy the car in the first place. It's really not about the car. He's not desiring that. What he's desiring is the struggle to get through it. Lacan says, the constant sense we have as subjects that something is lacking or missing from our lives is what it means to be human. We're always searching for fulfillment, for knowledge, for possessions, for love. And whenever we achieve these goals, there's always something more that we desire. Back to Christianity in the West. Um, It has basically felt this lack. It has noted the fact that we feel this insecurity, this thing missing from our lives. And the story that it has told us and has conditioned us to believe is that, like, for example, the the Genesis story needs to be interpreted in such a way that the reason we feel this way, the reason we feel guilt or conviction or shame is because at one point humanity transgressed. Like before transgression, everything was perfect and everything was complete and whole. 
but after Adam and Eve sinned, then it wasn't. And so we have, you know, our the only hope we have is to get back to that perfection, that state of perfection, back to the garden. But we can't ever get there unless someone bridges the gap. And then Jesus becomes, specifically the cross where Jesus dies, becomes the thing that bridges that gap. And speaking of signifiers and symbols and stories, if you grew up in an evangelical household like I did, you're automatically seeing the story of the cross, you know, flipped over horizontally and becoming the thing that bridges the gap, you know, between the uh, the two cliffs, uh, bridges the chasm. So with all of that in mind and with a bit of um, understanding from Lacan, basically what I understand is that Western Christianity has been trying to fix the need to buy a car with the actual car itself. But it never addresses the need of why you want to buy the car in the first place. Like that need, that anxiety, that drive, um, I think is something fundamental to being human. And it, we're not talking about cars here now. Now we're talking about Western Christianity's story, which is that, you know, we as humans feel this lack. Christianity in the West says it's because we're aware of it because we sinned. And because we're separated from God um, and that we have this desire to make things right and fixed and complete and whole, get back to perfection. And the only way that happens is because of the bloodshed of Jesus. And I think that's a little bit off. And that's actually not the same thing that the Eastern Church has said all these years. Although there's some similarities, there's a lot of things that aren't quite the same. So if anyone wants to tell you that, you know, the transactional act of Jesus dying on the cross is the same thing as the gospel. It's just not true. It's what people in the West have said is true. And it's been what it's been the story we've been telling ourselves in order to kind of fix our anxiety and our guilt and our shame. But what I think is happening is more like that anxiety and that existential angst and that insecurity, I think is just a part of what it means to be human. And I don't think we've ever been separate from God. Uh, I don't even understand what that would mean. How does anyone exist separate from God anyhow? So I don't see the anxiety necessarily going away. What I see with Jesus is that he helps us understand how to manage that desire and how to reorient our lives around non-coercive and, to borrow a Girardian phrase, non-rivalrous love. So instead of interacting with God in such a way that we think of him as a rival, which is now how I interpret the story with Adam and Eve, you know, basically the, the tempter there says to Eve, can you really trust God? Did he really say what he said? And basically, I'm paraphrasing now, but... Doesn't he, doesn't he have it all together? Doesn't he seem complete and whole? And so the tempter is playing off of the mimetic way that Eve has been created and now she wants to, she's desiring this thing because of her own really strong self-awareness of her own incompleteness, of her own lack. But she didn't have to, as I explain it this particular way, she didn't necessarily have to feel bad about that. That's just a part of being human. And that story, I think, is a pattern of how all of us are made, how all of us are created. 
We're such mimetic relational creatures. We're so aware of what other people are doing. It can often, especially as it plays off of our own insecurities, make us feel like, oh, God doesn't love us or we don't have it all together. And therefore we had to have this, you know, sacrificial thing happen in order for us to be complete. I think it's, that's not quite, that's not quite right. I think what Jesus is doing rather, he's not showing us that God needs sacrifice. He's showing us that God is really our friend and we've been motivated by the wrong kinds of desires and that he wants to reorient his life around love to show us how to be human so that we can reorient our lives around love. And of further interest to me is to think about how it was that Jesus learned about his father of love. I mean, I think you could probably say that little Yeshua had pretty good intuition. He was probably a pretty intelligent kid as he grew up. But I also know that he grew up in a home, well, full of stories, stories about a good God. Yeah, I think the little we know about his mom We can say she was an inspired, passionate woman who took seriously that God was with her and with her family and that God was into making things right for the marginalized. I mean, the first glimpse we get of her, she's speaking truth to power and talking about how Hebrew lives matter. I mean, she's saying all this out into the world. And as Jesus grew up in her environment and learned from her prophets and then his prophets, the prophets from their religious tradition, seems to me that he took it all to the next logical step. And that is, is that he would wind up being marginalized in order to reveal the powers of marginalization. And yes, I think Jesus actually lived and actually did this, but also, yes, I think it's a powerful story. It's a story of the underdog subverting the powers and revealing the true mechanism, the mechanism of, well, the myth of redemptive sacrifice the mechanism of surrogate victimization. Whew, that's a powerful story. It's a powerful story. So I don't think of Jesus as like the coin we put into the slot that then makes us whole and then gets us over the hump of ever having any more worries or struggles or tension or anxiety. No, I I think that we always have some of that stuff because we're human and that Jesus tells us we're already accepted and that God already loves us and um, he'll show us how to manage those desires. I think that's a really powerful story. There's been some psychological work, probably by a lot of different people, but there's a guy by the name of Paul Zak who has suggested now for a while that stories actually bring brains together at a neurological level. Apparently, the brain is stimulated in such a way that empathy is created, like oxytocin, the neurochemical oxytocin is released, and we have more empathy when we hear stories. And empathy apparently is a very important component in human beings being able to relate with one another and to build relationships with each other. It gets inside of us, and then it um, works its way out of us again, even at a neurological level, but certainly at a metaphorical level. Story is like time-released capsules, and you'll hear something that makes sense in the moment, but then the longer it lives inside of you, you know, later it will release 
even more potency and energy and truth into your life and cause you to think through something in a new and interesting way that you never would have imagined initially you would have thought of. That's why I think that movies or poems or songs can get inside of you and can stick with you for years in ways that facts from a textbook, they'll never work like that. One of the things I most appreciate about story truth is how it can use your context to get your attention and then once inside of you can open you up in a way that causes you to see the problems and the inconsistencies with your own context. I remember a few years ago watching the movie La La Land. It tells a story about how difficult Hollywood can be. But what's fascinating to me is that the whole thing actually plays out in the middle of Hollywood So when these people put this up on the screen, they're actually making something of an autobiography. Or take the series of films we call The Hunger Games, where the main actress gets put in these impossible situations where she has to prevail against the overriding system. It's the system that wants to conform her and squash her and make her subservient. The film industry, now think about this, pays her millions of dollars and the film industry makes hundreds of millions of dollars off of her acting. But what's crazy is that the film industry itself is a system that forces girls to be conformed, uh, squashed, made to be subservient in particular ways. It's wild. The main actress of The Hunger Games, what's her name? Jennifer, um, Jennifer Lawrence. I noticed a few years ago in the middle of the Me Too movement when all that was happening where women were coming forward and indicating that they've been put in really challenging situations, to say the least. Uh, I think at some point either her name was listed or she also disclosed that she had had some very uncomfortable relationships with Harvey Weinstein, who was the person who was responsible for making those movies, uh, The Hunger Games. So... Isn't that crazy? So she was manipulated into a system that made billions of dollars off of a story that said, don't be manipulated by systems. (laughs) That's wild to me. It's just a reminder that stories are going on around us all the time. That Weinstein story, it's being played out within a larger capitalistic, consumeristic story about power and sex and patriarchy, and privilege, et cetera, et cetera. Story truth, man. Story truth is hope and betrayal, wondering and homecoming, love and risk, the pinnacle of which is a tragic death followed by a spectacular resurrection. I love how Francis Spufford puts it. It's the only story we've ever heard of ending with a murder and then a wedding featuring the one murdered. That's the story truth of our sacred text. Jesus himself, apparently, according to Matthew, didn't do anything without telling stories. That's how important stories are. And I would imagine the same can probably be said of Muhammad or Gandhi or the Buddha. I'm not experts in those areas, so I don't know for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised that was true. So story truth, it's really important and it's good, but it's also dangerous which is why the powers don't want us to mess with story. They really want us to just stick to the cold, hard facts. 
things that they got to write and put in black and white that they can use to disenchant the world, to rationalize their particular way, to come up with their own instrumentation in order to measure things, systemize things. But that, of course, is not, thank God, how story works. So you've probably gathered by now that, yep, we're going to talk about narrative and story throughout this season. And I guess I want to close today by saying that you are in the middle of some really good thing that's playing out. You may not realize it yet because you're not to the end. But, you know, a good story doesn't happen without, well, like in literature, we might call it an inciting incident, something that creates a problem for the protagonist. Because even though art is subjective, I mean, we pretty much all agree that none of us are that interested in reading a novel where the protagonist has no problems to work through. So we need inciting incidents. Um, In music, we may just call it tension. We need tension that gets to be resolved and pulled apart and pushed back together throughout the ebb and flow of a song or a composition. Otherwise, frankly, it's not very interesting music. And that's the way that art works in general. It's not very interesting unless there are problems. And so I want to close today by saying that you may be in the middle of some problems, but don't just automatically assume that the problems are evidence that you're doing something wrong. Although, obviously, all throughout life, we have to reevaluate why we're doing certain things, you know, regarding what's working and what's not and our motivations. But the problems aren't necessarily evidence that you're doing something wrong. More likely, the problems are just evidence that you are in the middle of a really good story. So don't give up. God is with you. And he cares about how this is all going to play out. And he's really invested as well. And I think he loves stories. And you, my friend, are a great story. episode, I'm going to read one of the shorter stories of the book called The Hope and Melvin of Humanity and Other Surprising Short Stories. And uh, that'll get you in the mood, I think, to have your thinking open and expanded. And Lord knows we need more of that. It's going to be fun. Yeah. I mean, it should be. If it's not fun, why why are you even listening? This should be enjoyable, right? All right. Take care. We'll see you next time.